Hello, hello, this is Jonathan and you're listening to the Johnny Talks Podcast, the place where we help you achieve your financial goals. Hola amigos, hope you're having a great day wherever you are. And if you're a new listener to the show, special warm welcome to you. I really appreciate you tuning into the show. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I appreciate it even more. In today's episode, we will speak to Greg Rosdiba, the co-founder of Dundas Life, a life insurance company. Before starting his company, Greg worked with financial advisors, wealth insurance, intermediary companies, and insurance companies for five years. In addition, he's very passionate about tech, and this will show during the conversation. We will discuss his financial journey from when he started his career, the common money struggles his friends were facing, and how he helped them get on the right path. And finally, we will divert to a, let's say, more uh, market and industry talk on his thought on the potential of the blockchain technology. This episode is for you if you know you need to improve your money game, but you're not sure about how and where to actually start. So without further ado, let's hear the interview. Hello, Greg. How are you doing today? Very well today. How are you, Jonathan? Yes, I'm fine. It's, uh, I'm, on, I'm on weekend, basically, so uh, everything is done. So excited to talk to you and um, great to have you on because you are an insurance specialist and you just started the company um, Dundas Life, if I pronounce that correctly. Yep. So um, yeah, what is that about actually this company? Sure. So what we're doing at Dundas Life is we're making the insurance buying process much more straightforward, life insurance specifically. Today, it's written with paper. Uh, there are multiple softwares that an individual has to navigate with their advisor, and it's it's a rather mundane experience. So what we decided to do was digitize a good chunk of it mm -hmm. to make it very intuitive, to make it very easy while providing some best-in-class support uh, from our trained advisors. So it's nothing revolutionary in the conventional sense, but we are taking a very mundane, paper-driven process and making it digital with excellent service. Okay, excellent. And uh, I think we'll talk about it uh, later because I know you're passionate about the tech world. Okay, excellent. And okay, the reason we will not go into details on the insurance uh, today, but I, I think you have a great topic as well to share with us some great insights on starting uh, your financial journey from scratch. So you're based in Canada, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, just to give some context to the listeners. Okay, very good. So uh, Greg, yes. So, so you, you told me you have a great experience, of course, with insurance, but as well with the world of finance in general, personal finance. You have uh, experience with the, with the wealth uh, assets management industry, etc., And you have helped yourself, some friends and colleagues with their finances. So mm -hmm. maybe my first question to you, uh, Greg, is um, what are their struggles, actually? What, uh, what, do they, what questions do they come to you with, with regards to their personal finance uh, issues? Sure. I think the two big ones are, where does a lot of my money go every month? It just mm -hmm. seems to disappear. So even people with an, like a good or very good income find that at the end of the month, there isn't a ton left. Mm -hmm. And out of the money that is left, uh, the question becomes, what do I do with it? Both both are pretty loaded questions. So when when I talk to them about the personal finance side of things, like my background academically was in finance and accountancy, uh, but that didn't really set me up for personal finance success in a strange way. Mm -hmm. uh, it was when I got out into the working world, you know, like at the end of the month, if you're a little bit ahead, that's a good thing. But it wasn't until... 
a couple of years later where my girlfriend actually introduced me to budgeting. She basically said, sit down, look at your look at your bank statements and write it all down. And every time you incur an expense, write it down. Uh, it was awful. And this <laughs> is coming from someone who finished a finance degree. I thought this is, yeah, this isn't great. Mm-hmm. But as I got into the habit of it and it was, it was rocky. The first couple of months I was okay. I would track things. My savings rate wasn't great. And then there were months where, you know, in the summer where you're going out for drinks every other night or something along those lines, you just lose track altogether. Mm -hmm. And at at a certain point, things just started to jive because I started to look at very specific items in my budget. And I started thinking, you know, how do I reduce this particular aspect? So for a living, for example, this might be a bit of an extreme example. When I started off my career, I split a one plus one room. So it was a one bedroom plus den with two other friends. It was tight. It was small, uh, but it allowed me to live in downtown Toronto, which isn't very cheap, uh, relatively reasonably. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, I started looking at the different points and I started to realize that despite making an okay income, it wasn't great. Uh, I managed to start saving, you know, reasonable amounts of money. And then at that point, I started looking through a bunch of financial literature when it came to personal finance, and I realized I was focused too much on trying to optimize my investments rather than just getting started with it in the first place. So buying that market ETF and just scarfing that money aside every month consistently, that habit is way more important than trying to figure out you know, where do I pay the least fees or you know, should I invest in something riskier or less risky? Those things so, come so in time. You, um... You you were investing your money in ETFs, but at the end of the month, when you had some leftover, is that it? Or uh... yeah, so I mean mm-hmm. that's that's basically the that's basically how it worked itself out. You know, I put a little bit of money aside for fun things, but yeah, I just put it into a simple market ETF and just gradually watch it grow. Yeah, but not at the start of the month. I mean, not when you got your paycheck. This was not your priority. Is that how I understand it correctly? Initially, yeah. yeah. So when mm-hmm. I, when I was kicking it off, it was just it was sitting in my checking account, and it wasn't really growing. And what I mean by growing is month on month, it wasn't really growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I hit a certain point where I thought, okay, if I start making a concerted effort to make that number grow, then you see the checking uh, or the number that you have in your checkings account grow, and then you start thinking, you know, how do I invest this? But initially, it was just month by month, you know, mm-hmm. just hope that I spend less than uh, than I make. But there was no, there's no counting really involved. It was a bit of a mess at the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so how do you go from there to, um, how was your journey then looking from there to then helping your colleagues and friends then? Yeah. And I think it helped having the academic background, mm-hmm. uh, seeing how portfolios are built, but in hindsight, it's nice context, but it's not essential. So when I had a lot of friends reaching out, it was mostly at work. Uh, they had uh, like a pension matching scheme of sorts in place, and it asked for uh, someone's risk capacity. And because it went through this robo process where it takes you through a survey, then it allocates your funds, it didn't do a very good job getting context. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a colleague of mine was saying that, you know, he's risk averse, but, you know, he's not planning on buying a house or having any kids for the next, I don't know, five to seven years. Mm-hmm. So he concluded that, well, you know, he wants, he probably wants to make the money grow, but for some reason he was sitting in very low yield bonds. It didn't make any sense. So his risk profile said, you know, he wants a very low risk investment, 
But based on the conversation that was had, he wasn't looking for the lowest risk investment. He was looking for something that would still earn him a return yeah. because you know his, his life situation dictated that he, he could take on more risk. Uh, so it was having those sorts of conversations. And I think you know, as a lot of these robo services and these digital services start emerging from banks and these fintechs, I think the conversation around people's goals and aspirations won't be automated away. These are still important things to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I agree because okay, when I started my career, Greg, for example, and, and still today, huh, in my last uh, job, uh, corporate job, you get inscribed. I mean, you get subscribed to um, a pension retirement account uh, here in Europe in uh, various countries I've li I lived in, but nobody really asks about. Yeah, what you want to do, what's your risk profile? I mean, you can kind of do it yourself, but at such, you're uh, registered to it and you, nobody, nobody asks you questions. So you need to do the, the proactive work yourself to really change your investment profile, which is fine. But, you know, if I had those questions, let's say when I started my career, I would not know, you know, I would not know if I need to be aggressive, dynamic or uh, conservative like your friend. So it makes it a bit harder. And then when you're not informed, when you don't have this knowledge, it makes it difficult, maybe when you just thought out, to, to make the right decision for you. Right. Were there resources available to you to figure that out? Are financial advisors very accessible in Europe? I know in the States, because a lot of them deal with, well, they get commission payouts every time they sell something. You can always find a financial advisor within one capacity or another. Some are better than others. But what does that look like in Europe as you're starting off your career? What options are available to you? Yeah, well, uh, I, I started my career in Norway and uh, myself, I'm from Belgium. So mm -hmm. the, the thing is that um, I'm not aware of any financial advisor. I would not know which number to call except the bank. Right. Or I, I would need to Google. And when I was living in Norway, so when I started to get my first real paychecks, I mean, my first real job, I would ask the bank. I would go to the bank and call them, you know, without knowing better. And it was back then in 2006, 2007. Right. So, you know, I was not even reading financial blogs or anything. So I would not know, actually. I would just go to the bank, ask my parents and uh, how they did it and maybe some friends. But I don't think they would know much better than me back then. Interesting. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that this all took place in 2006. As you were kicking off, I guess, your financial journey, mm. what role did the recession play in all of that? Like, what were you and your colleagues at the time thinking uh, when it came to personal finance? What impact did that have? Well, um, actually, the, the funny thing is it's um, luckily it did not affect us very much. We were not too worried or anything. I was uh, working in IT and... Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't even have in really investments. I mean, I had some savings, but that's it. So I was not yet even started with, uh, with stocks and bonds by, back then. So I, I was not too worried, actually, as long as I got my job and our job was doing okay, uh, my job back then. So at least there was no, nobody fired or anything. So it was okay. Okay. And that's not bad. And I guess from a portfolio composition standpoint, I hope I'm not veering off too much, but this is an area of interest for me. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, they kept saying that, you know, Americans love equities. They love stocks. They love equities. You know, that's where they get their returns. In this one case study I saw, it was a comparison between your average American investor and your average German investor in particular. And the German investor was more exposed to debt products, all sorts of bonds. 
by a good margin compared to their American counterpart. Do you find that in Europe as well, generally, or is that a German-specific example? Yeah, you know, uh, Europe is a, it's a very fragmented, so there's a lot of different, I would say, money mindsets per country. It's very different, so it's hard to compare uh, the German to the French, to the Belgian, to the Norwegian. So uh, what I can say from my uh, experience is that in... Um, in Belgium, people like investing in real estate, in, in their home, in a secondary home for renting out. I think in Norway, it's very similar in that sense. Equities get less favor. Uh, in Belgium, there's maybe more interest, but still, it's still a marginal fraction of the population. Uh, I think really, um, so far, and now I live in Luxembourg, here it's a bit harder to say because I haven't lived here for a long time. So for I, I would say for Norway and uh, Belgium, mo mostly people are invested in, uh, in the real estate. Interesting. And mm -hmm. I guess given the dynamic in Europe, how there are so many different pockets of different types of people, who would you say is the most aggressive European investor? Like if you had to bring it down to one country, who's doing it the most aggressively, do you think? Uh, honestly, I cannot answer. I, I have no idea, actually. <laughs> I was just curious. That's yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a good question, huh? but I, I don't know. I would expect uh, actually maybe some Belgians quite aggressive and and a fraction of people here and there, but I don't know. It's it's I would say more more um, Nordic people in the north a bit more aggressive on stocks maybe. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess that makes sense. Mm. But yeah, no, I just uh, yeah over here hit a point where uh, I guess kind of bringing it back uh, when we were looking at the personal finance side of things, there weren't a lot of options available. And I think people just went with what was, you know, freely available. There's some Google search and people mm -hmm. just go to the bank, but it sounds very similar to your, to your experience in Norway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then even today, I know there are some offices here in Luxembourg where you can go with your questions, but okay, now I, I've been in the finance, I mean, the personal finance space for a number of years. So I, I don't think that would be adding a lot of value. And, um, and then, of course, there's the wealth managers and the asset managers. Okay, that that's uh, for high net worth individuals. But at least for the retail people, it's I don't really know if it's a habit here in Luxembourg to go to consult uh, somebody, an advisor, somebody else than a bank. So this I don't know. And I don't, don't think in Belgium I know many people that have consulted such uh, uh, professionals. Yeah, and I think most people think that there is an upfront cost associated most of the time mm -hmm. when at least in North America, that's not the case. They usually make it on the tail end. So every year you're invested, your financial advisor gets, you know, they get, they get their mm -hmm. management fee yeah. and that there's no cost up front. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And I think that's something important to get out there is that, you know, a wealth advisor will help you with a lot of, you know, your planning needs for free. There are fee, uh, there are advisors that do work for a fee. There's also quite a few that don't. Uh, so if someone's looking to kick off, uh, chatting with any sort of financial advisor and seeing how they get compensated is a good place to start. Very good. And then, Greg, uh, a little bit back to you. So, yeah, you're helping your friends. And um, how has their approach changed them to, to finance? Is it really just um, a practical standpoint, like tracking their finances better and learning more about uh, investing in, uh, in ETFs and index funds for, I mean, for starters? I think they became more conscious with the choices that they make on the day to day. Okay. And I think that's what translates to more money in, in the investment accounts. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you start uh, deliberately making an effort to look at your budget every month and you start seeing, you know, certain costs incurred that aren't adding any 
value in your life. So let's say you have a subscription service that you never watch. Mm -hmm. you know, why are you paying $10, $15 for it? You might as well cut it out. Yeah. And then without even really thinking about it, as time progresses, even $15 a month can turn into $180 at the end of the year. You do that with a few things, all of a sudden you're up a few hundred dollars, if not a couple thousand dollars. And for a lot of people, that's that does add up to be a lot of money. So I think once they get really focused in on those activities, and that does translate into more money in the investment account. And then as a result, the investment account grows at a much faster pace. So I do bring it down to those individual activities that eventually add up into an investment return. Mm -hmm. And yourself? So, so okay, you started with uh, this uh, general broad low-cost uh, index funds. Uh, mm -hmm. Are you still contributing to those funds or have you diversified since then? I've diversified and it was interesting, largely because of the pandemic, though. I think for most of my working life, uh, that was the vast majority of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. But understanding that what was happening in Italy and what was happening in China was very quickly going to happen here, I thought the economy isn't going to function the way that it's been functioning historically. So the question became, what are people going to use? What are people going to buy if they're sitting at home? Mm -hmm. And Right out of the gate, I thought there's going to be everything related with a computer because if people are working at home, they're either going to need better computers or they're going to need a computer in the first place for some people. So I thought semiconductors make sense. And then I thought if everyone's going to be living online, cybersecurity is going to play a bigger role, perhaps a little bit more exposure in that space would make sense. Mm -hmm. And then I think the most obvious one was just cloud services. If everyone's living at home and they have to conduct, you know, commerce online and all their social is online, you spend a lot more time on the Internet. So my thought was people are probably going to participate in more cloud services and that's bound to go up. And that's effectively what happened. There are different areas of the economy that you know, did well, did poorly. But when I was exposed to a broad index fund going into uh, the pandemic, My thought was, you know, big box retailers aren't going to do well. You know, maybe maybe natural resources won't do too well. Some will, some won't. But there was a lot of uncertainty. So when I was looking at this sort of almost paradigm shift, my thought was, how do I reduce my risk by getting out of things like retail and going into things that will probably do well, like, you know, computer type companies, cloud services related companies and mm -hmm. so on. Okay, and then, so how did you do that? Did you buy more shares of, um, I don't know, tech, tech stocks or tech uh, ETFs? Or uh, how, how did that, in practicality, go? Yeah, I went, I went into ETFs. Uh, I had a sense for the individual mm -hmm. companies that I wanted to be exposed to. But with the platform, or I guess the platforms that I use in Canada for you know, buying equities or buying stocks or ETFs, It's much less expensive to buy an ETF in a specific category. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at something like se uh, semiconductors, I thought it'll be much cheaper uh, to have this basket of semiconductor companies that where most of them are going to do well. So I thought I might as well just buy the ETF. So I ended up buying a cybersecurity ETF, a fair bit of it, uh, semiconductor ETF, a fair bit of it, cloud computing, as well as a few others. And after it became... Uh, evident that the Chinese economy was going to rebound relatively quickly. There's some good Chinese uh, like industrial ETFs that are available as well. Okay, no, it was uh, definitely you did a, a good move. Absolutely, when I see the the, the stock price of, uh, I mean, let's say Amazon, 
and uh, services uh, such as uh, Zoom. I mean, this the these companies okay in in the stock valuation they went uh, quite high, but then is, isn't that a, a little bit uh, short term thinking, Gregory? So are, is your plan then to to sell those ETFs uh, when the pandemic quiets down, or or is it uh, just uh, yeah to to secure kind of a, a good growth of your assets in general? It's a really good question in that I think uh, a lot of the pre-pandemic companies that started struggling during the pandemic, I think a lot of them will come back, mm -hmm. whether it's restaurants or whether it's re commercial real estate or whether it's retail. I think those will always play a role in my portfolio once things start coming back to normal. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's undeniable that these computing plays are going to play a, a larger and larger role in our lives you know, practically every year. So if you look back even 10 years ago and compare what we have today, I mean, if you look at the next 10 years and what's going to become available with 5G speeds for your average person, Elon releasing things like Starlink, which is going to make internet accessible in the most remote places, mm -hmm. the way that we use computers and the way that we use computing devices is going to fundamentally change. And I think that will require a lot of these companies to produce more inevitably. When I looked at this pandemic and I looked at the few years before, I think a lot of people could have said, you know, like more, more businesses should go online, but not everyone has a Shopify store or a big commerce store, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. When the pandemic hit, that all changed overnight. Is it going to change back? Hard to say. Not entirely, I don't think. I do think that it will become more normal for a business to start online than uh, just a physical location. I think that's going to become more common to test certain concepts. I think uh, a lot of the behavior of a lot of these companies is going to shift as well, where the focus will be more on trying things out digitally first before they set up physical operations. Yeah, no, it makes absolute sense, uh, Greg. I um, I can follow the train the train of thought, and 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 I think absolutely that the pandemic has emphasized the I mean the movement of going to tech and people starting online businesses instead of brick and mortar, definitely. And one question, of course, I have to you, Greg, because uh, I, uh, I know that you are an enthusiast for blockchain and crypto technologies. And um, of course, with the recent price of Bitcoin and all the altcoins, I just want to hear just uh, briefly your thoughts about it. So we are not encouraging people to invest in, uh, in crypto, but just I want to hear your thoughts. It's a very interesting question because when you listen to all the different pundits talking on like CNBC, for example, about what role Bitcoin is going to play in the future, what role is Ethereum or the blockchain going to play in the future? From respected people, you'll get a dozen different responses, mm -hmm. except I think if you break it down to the lowest common denominator, uh, there's some challenges that exist, but the benefits are also undeniable. So I'll give you an example. I heard a statistic somewhere that somewhere between 6 and 8% of banking transactions are, are flagged as fraudulent or something along those lines worldwide. It's not a terribly small amount, but it's, it's also quite significant. Now, take that with a grain of salt because I would need to get specific wording behind that down correctly. But it's not it's not ironclad. But if you look at the Bitcoin network, uh, for example, or the blockchain specifically, uh, it hasn't been hacked before, which is really interesting. And I think a lot of people talk about its shortcomings. Like I think uh, Bitcoin in particular, it uses more electricity than all of Argentina now or something like that, which is obviously not great for the environment. But when it comes to the benefits of this kind of system, numerous things can emerge. 
all of a sudden, uh, these giant layers of administration can be turned into software, which I think is promising. And I think if it's made in a way that's low cost and accessible to individuals, I think the blockchain is going to have a huge impact on everyone's lives. It's very early to tell, though. And I couldn't even say if Bitcoin's going to be that channel where all this change happens, or even if the blockchain is that channel that where, where all this takes place. I mean, there are other emerging competing projects that are coming out uh, that do have something competitive that they can bring to the table. But it's chaos. And I think it's chaos in a good way because it is early technology. It does have a lot of promise. It could save, in the long run, it could save people money. It could make it easier to transfer money across borders. But I think it's like it's like the early days of the internet in a sense. Mm-hmm. Because when you started, you know, when you got your first Macintosh computer, for example, did you did you think that you can book properties on your phone, you know, 15 years up the road through Airbnb? No one really, like, people might have thought about that, you know, conceptually, but practically, people would have said, you're crazy. What do you mean? You know, the internet on your phone, and now I can book properties. If I fly to Rome, I can have my ticket on my phone. Like, these things were crazy. But now when we look at the blockchain, again, despite its many shortcomings, there's a lot of promise there when it comes to, you know, creating a financial system that could, in theory, become a little bit more fair. And get rid of a lot of the, I guess, the administrative and middlemen that are involved in financial services today and make it simple for people to participate in financial services in general. Okay. And then is this something that as well with the pandemic, you have started uh, putting uh, money into or did you, were you already part of the, let's say the group uh, before the pandemic? Yeah, it was a bit of both. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because when they were talking about the sheer amount of money that was being printed in the U.S., Mm -hmm. that made me a bit uneasy. I'm not, you know, I don't have a strong opinion about inflation one way or another, but it's undeniable that with quantitative easing and the amount of U.S. dollar that's been printed in the last year and a half, it is a rather staggering amount. There is international demand for the U.S. dollar. Uh, but that does make me a bit uneasy. And when I look at what could potentially combat inflationary pressure, I mean, historically, it's been gold. But I think in the future, it'll probably be some sort of basket of goods. It might be something like a Bitcoin. It might be gold. It might be silver. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think we are entering, uh, to a certain extent, some unprecedented times. But I do think that the sheer amount of money that's being printed by the governments does make me a bit uneasy. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some real sovereign debt concerns uh, like the ones that existed about 10 years ago in parts of Europe. Okay, no, very good. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, uh, Greg, on that. And um, yeah, I've been attending some uh, meetup uh, lately and it, it was all about crypto, you know. So it's, it was a group uh, in Belgium I can, I can share. It's about financial independence, etc. And we talk about ETFs, about saving money. But then lately, it's only been about crypto. So that's why I wanted to introduce this, especially since you're an enthusiast. So I think that's interesting. And then, Greg, um, maybe before we go to your um, to doing this life, I want to talk about that. But just before that, so just to, to summarize and to go back to the listener uh, as well a little bit, if somebody is now struggling with finance or doesn't know uh, where to start? Uh, what would you say to our listeners who are struggling? Would they like, okay, we well, talk about Bitcoin, talk about ETFs, but okay, I'm, I don't know exactly where I, where should I start with my money? Where should I, yeah, how do I begin my, my path to uh, financial independence or uh, whatever that is? 
I think the first step is always measuring your situation, whether you know you have a good income or a bad income, whether you spend lots of money or little money. It always comes down to the fundamentals, which is, you know, where's the money going every month and where's the money coming in from every month, just to get a better lay of the land. Because at that point, if you realize, you know, there's a little bit of reckless spending, you can rein it in. Some people don't have that luxury, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think that being able to get a sense for you know, where the money's coming in from, whether it's a job, whether it's, you know, some sort of passive income streams, if someone has a side hustle or something like that, being able to gauge, you know, how much effort is being put in for how much money is important, but also realizing where that money is spent. And I think the one thing that I read about, it was a couple of months ago, but it struck me as very interesting was when people look at the way their grandparents lived. And I know the example that was given in this article was in New York. If someone had an apartment in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, it was, you know, you lived there with your parents and your grandparents and your siblings, sometimes an uncle, mm-hmm. everyone lived in the same place. And if you look at old European movies, it's very much the same thing. You have multiple generations of families that lived in the same house and sometimes the same apartment. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing that that particular author was stressing was a, a good chunk of it is also expectation setting understanding what you actually need to live and what is frivolous. It's a very dark way of looking at it, a very not fun way of looking at it. But there's, you know, if you look at the next month and you're struggling financially, sometimes you got to whittle it down even further and think, you know, what do I actually need to live this month? Mm -hmm. It's a terrible way of looking at it. It's definitely not a fun way of looking at it, but I think it brings things into focus a fair bit. The one area where I was exposed to something like that is I ended up taking a job with a startup where my income was very low. And all of a sudden, all these things that I enjoyed about having, a, you know, an okay income uh, as, as a salesperson, all of a sudden disappeared. And then it became a question of how do I have fun for free? What do I absolutely need in a week? And I was breaking it down to things like groceries even. I thought, you know, I don't want to eat ramen every day. I need vegetables. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. uh, it got that granular. Uh, but then again, I brought it down to, you know, where's the money coming in from? Where's the money going out? Uh, What's going to change in the next 12 months? And how do I make adjustments in every category of my life, whether it's, you know, how do I make my living situation cheaper? How do I reduce my spend on transport? Is there any way I can reduce what I spend on food? Am I drinking too much or too little? I guess drinking too little (laughs) is it too little? (laughs) But, you know, looking at it that way. Yeah you really bring into focus, you know, what do I actually need to live? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you use that as a baseline, then I think uh, your sense is really sharpened in terms of your finances. Mm -hmm. No, very good. It's, um, you know, it it makes sense, uh, Greg. It's, yeah, sometimes you need to take a a difficult step to to move forward. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's pain is necessary for uh, bigger gains later on. And uh, Greg, so yeah, we, we, um, Definitely noticed your interest in tech and you're a specialist in insurance. So can you tell us uh, how you're helping your customers with uh, Dundas Life? So life insurance, why is that important and how you're doing it at uh, Dundas Life? Sure. So when we looked at the insurance landscape, this is true in Canada, this is true in the US, and this is true in many parts of Europe. A lot of people don't know where to start with insurance, just plain and simple. A lot of people understand that they need it. They just don't know where to go. And if you go to an online calculator, it'll tell you more or less, okay, you need a term 20 product for half a million. This is how much it'll cost. But then you think to yourself, is this a good company? What does the process look like? How long will it take? Is the process that I'm currently going through normal? 
oh, the insurance company is telling me that I'm getting rated, which means I'll have to pay more for my monthly premiums. Why is that the case? Is there anything I can do about it? Mm-hmm. And then when you come across these questions, all of a sudden, a calculator becomes inadequate. But if you go to an advisor, and there's quite a few advisors that are struggling to get by, this is well documented, are they trying to sell you something that you don't need? So being able to strike that balance between where do I get a good, where do I get really good advice with a very clean and digital process all in one place where the advisor takes the time to understand my need. That's the role that we're looking to fill here. So in all of this with Dundas Life, we can help consumers that are looking to buy their first home and looking to insure it. If they have their first child, we can help them plan for that as well, Mm -hmm. but also any other insurance needs that they may have. Situations vary dramatically. So whether it's, you know, again, insuring a first home or if someone has a condition like diabetes or has formerly had cancer, we can support them in that journey as well. Okay, Greg, thank you very much for your insights. We had a little bit of, uh, let's say, industry talk as well. I really enjoyed it. it. It's good because we don't have it a lot here. And uh, yeah, sometimes I like this variation as well. So thank you for your insights. It's uh, It was uh, precious as well. I, I really liked it. And um, Greg, as you know, we are uh, coming at the end of the show. And uh, before we leave, we always uh, have our three quick fire questions that we ask every guest. Mm -hmm. So are you ready for it? 100%. Bring it on, Jonathan. Okay, fantastic. So, uh, Greg, um, yeah, we talked about investments, but what has been your best investment so far? Weirdly enough, weightlifting, Uh, spending money on a gym pass and actually showing up. I think it does really good things to your mental health, and it just makes you feel generally better. Not possible in, in the times of quarantine, but... Even, you know, playing a YouTube video with, you know, bodyweight exercises, it does go a long way. It really does change your mood and your outlook. Okay, great. Second question, Greg, uh, what is the best book you can recommend to anyone? It does not need to be a financial book. Great question. Uh, The one that's had the most profound impact on my life is actually a European one. It's a British author. His name was Patrick Lee Fermer, and the book is Time of Gifts. It's about his journey walking from the Netherlands uh, down to the Balkan states And he documented everything along the way, whether it was meeting, you know, Germans before the war and meeting all kinds of interesting characters along the way. It's a very great book. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. I'll uh, I'll have a look and uh, link it in the show notes. And then what is uh, the best purchase you can recommend for under $100? Another good question. Uh, This is a weird one, but uh, a mocha pot. My parents never drank coffee. So I always thought, you know, like American style drip coffee was the only way to get it. But when I learned about a mocha pot that you can pick up for, I don't know, $30, $40, where it makes espresso and it tastes pretty good, it ended up saving me a lot of money at the coffee shop. So I'm a big fan. And it really is beautifully designed in the sense that it does what it's intended to do and it doesn't really break. So I'm a big fan of mocha pots. So it's like the the Italian version one? Is that the the one where you put your... uh... You pour your your uh, powder in, I mean, your, your coffee in, and then it boils and then it goes to the second floor? Yeah, 100%. And it, yeah. It, that might sound strange to a European audience where it's more conventional. In North America, it's not as common, but I highly encourage Canadians and Americans to take a look. Uh, had a profound impact on my life. Oh, wow, on your life. Okay, because I had one before, <laughs> but then I, I got bored of uh, all these things. But it's it's great coffee. But and uh, yeah, you need to clean it. But it, it's great coffee and it's very strong coffee. So yeah, it's not the coffee you you get in uh, in the U.S. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And you know what? Given how much coffee I drink, that might be the shocking thing. It's like, well, why did this have such a role in your life? You know, when you drink three coffees a day, sometimes four, that plays a role in your day. So I mean, if you have a bad cup of coffee to start it off, that might sound like a small thing, but 
you know, it, it can just change your mood. So, you know, a good coffee in the morning does make an impact, I think. Yeah, exactly. The, a good smell to start the day. That's great. Yeah. And um, Greg, so we talked about your uh, company, Dundas Life, but uh, where can people find you besides that? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn if anyone ever wants to follow up at Gregory Rosdiba or find me on Twitter. Twitter's my favorite place to be. Uh, the handle is Gregory.Rosdiba. Okay, I will link it as well so uh, the listeners can find you and get in touch. So that's great. So Greg, thanks again for uh, this episode, this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I, yeah, I, I hope we can speak uh, soon again, maybe more about tech, who knows? Wonderful. Well, hey, keep me posted, Jonathan. Love the show over here. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something from it. And if you found it useful, please make sure you share it with a friend. Or you can also rate the show in your favorite podcast app. This will help the show to grow. So if you do so, thank you very much. And now, before I let you go, <laughs> let's go through the key takeaways for today. Number one, if you're facing money struggles right now, ask yourself those questions. Where does my money go every month? Where does it come from? Number two, be realistic about your expectations. Understand in terms of money what you need to live on and what is frivolous. So it's not so fun. It's a dark way to uh, look at your money. That's uh, how Greg put it. But this is needed. So when you make an effort to pay attention to your budget, you will start to make more conscious choices and you will end up saving good amounts of money. And that money can in turn help your investment accounts to grow. Beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Number three on investing. Getting started with investing is more important than pondering about the minimum fees or the right account. It's all about the habit of putting money aside every month consistently. Number four, if you're interested in investing in a particular industry, it might be cheaper and less risky to buy a collection of company shares through an industry ETF rather than the individual company shares themselves. And last but not least, it's not really a key takeaway, but yeah, European countries really cannot be put under one umbrella when it comes to money. Every country has a different approach to money and investing. So yeah, let me know if it's common practice to go to a financial advisor, and I'll be curious to know how people invest in your country. So that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcast. And of course, please do not hesitate to contact me if you have any questions or feedback. Send me an email, john at johnnytalks.com or connect through social media at johnnytalks on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And amigos, once more, thanks so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time.